if you really want to drive people nuts, Jeff, let's just audit in like a beep that lasts for about 20 <laughs> seconds or so. So they think that they just missed the most brilliant idea. <laughs> Spoiler alert, we don't have it. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Major Revisions. My name is Jeff Atkins. I'm a postdoc at Virginia Commonwealth, and with me is... John Walter, a postdoc at University of Kansas and Virginia, Virginia Commonwealth University. And Grace Wilkinson, a postdoc at the University of Virginia and an incoming assistant professor at Iowa State University. I'm also technically a visiting something here at the University of Virginia. We all have double appointments. I just wanted to throw that in there, too. That's just to show we're doing we that. Yeah. yeah. We so. could do a whole show on that. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Academia, so. the world of double appointments. Yeah, it would be kind of interesting <laughs> Where to you do work a, many places, but you don't show. really get paid at any. Well, yeah, I had a, someone question, wait, how do you get paid at one university but work at another and I just told them grant money. Um, well, today's main topic of conversation is going to be, uh, since, you know, I think part of this is talking about, well, really the future of ecology. All of us are pretty young, starting our careers here. And, um, you know, the both the British Ecological Society and the Ecological Society of America have in the last couple of years celebrated their, you know, 100-year anniversaries, respectively. So our main topic today is going to be talking about this article in the Journal of Ecology, right, from 2013, Identification of 100 Fundamental Ecological Questions. Before we start, though, anybody got anything interesting? Banter of sorts? Well, you guys probably read in the news um, recently. As of yesterday, the news is out that we're over the 400 ppm threshold permanently in the atmosphere. So September is supposed to be the lowest um, CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere in general, yet we were over 400 ppm every day this past September. That's not good. That's, no. Yeah, so what do you guys think this might mean for uh, how the public sort of is going to interpret this news? I, you know, in in some respects it's, those who care will continue to care, and I don't know if it really means anything broadly. I hope I'm really wrong about that. Yeah, you know, I think if people are going to be swayed, uh, it's probably not from a number like 400 ppm, but uh, from sort of more tangible lines of evidence, um, you know, observing changes in phenology, um, changes in weather, uh, it's certainly been, uh, you know, sort of record uh, extremes of, you know, heat um, primarily, but also other extreme weather events uh, recently. And, and those seem to be increasing in frequency and intensity um, consistent with what scientists have been predicting for uh, a good while now. Um, and so I think that those are the types of things that will um, will really affect more people's lives directly and um, change people's minds about uh, evidence for climate change. Do either of you guys listen to that show 
uh, warmer guards? Nope. No. So it's a it's a podcast hosted by Eric Holthouse from Slate, uh, Andy Revkin from The Times, and Jacqueline Gill from University of Maine. And so I probably like two months old. It's a podcast mostly just talking about um, climate change global warming issues and kind of a little bit of the science behind it but a lot of the societal things too pretty highly recommended um so anybody who really wants to delve deep into that without having to you know read the actual literature and some of that, it's pretty good do you think it's but, bad podcast karma that we're starting a podcast and we don't listen to some other <laughs> podcasts uh no. I, I wasn't going to bring up the fact that I don't really listen to podcasts, but, you, uh, don't. you know. That's good. It's keeping it fresh, John. Yeah. Dude, it's making it, you're like an outsider, right? Like, you could run for president. You don't have any experience president doing of podcasts? this. So the president of podcasts? There podcast. might be podcast well. skeletons in his closet we don't know about. <laughs> there may be. This will, this will be old news by the time this actually comes out, but there was uh, some interesting developments in the Trump camp this morning regarding... Uh, a sex tape. That's awesome. So, excellent. Yeah. That is exactly what this election has been missing. Yeah. Which yeah. one of his ex-wives? <laughs> no, he's not in it. Fortunately, it's um, he was railing on the Miss Universe candidate again and saying that she's a terrible person. You should go see her sex tape or something. And she doesn't apparently even have one. Like, so <laughs> no idea where he got this idea from. It's great. So, oh god. Anyway. Excellent. <laughs> so we should probably get to the actual show. 100 here. questions in ecology. 100 questions in ecology. So um, by the time this comes out, we'll, we'll hopefully have like a website or something that we can link to on this. But we're too much involved in the work here to actually have the infrastructure up. But we'll get that. That'd be good. So I guess, yeah, we can go around and everybody can bring up a question. We're obviously not going to go through 100 of these. But I guess you say, so uh, Grace, you go first. What's, what's kind of your background so everyone... Yeah, so um, I'm a limnologist and an ecosystem ecologist, and my research focuses on understanding dynamics in water quality, as well as carbon biogeochemistry in freshwater ecosystems. Um, So I was really drawn to the ecosystem ecology questions that were here. Um, And so one of the things that um, I've been doing a lot of research on recently in a collaborative group that I've been working on is trying to understand resilience in ecosystems and when they're approaching tipping points and whether or not we can predict that. So questions 58 and 59 are really applicable to things that I'm doing right now, trying to understand when ecosystems are susceptible to tipping points and whether or not you can predict those and how can you tell whether an ecosystem is near a tipping point or a regime shift. John, what about you? Yeah, so I'm a population ecologist who um, does a fair amount of theory and empirical work looking at uh, spatiotemporal patterns in ecology, uh, mostly looking at population dynamics. Uh, So some of the questions that were most interesting to me were um, things like, do different demographic rates vary predictably over different spatial scales, and how do they then combine to influence spatiotemporal population dynamics? And there are a few other um, questions along those lines that, um, you know, really grab at my personal research, but also some things that I don't work on directly that um, I think are interesting and important questions in the field. Awesome. Um, So like Grace, I'm an ecosystem ecologist. Now the project I'm working on now is more going into uh, looking at measures of ecological complexity, 
basically like you know stand like forest stand structure and how that influences um, you know like productivity and biogeochemical cycling and my background is mostly in carbon cycling before that so a little bit of a mix I was also drawn very strongly to the ecosystem questions as well so Grace you want to lead us off sure well I guess I actually kind of wanted to get back to some of the things you're talking about, sort of oh, spatial yeah. heterogeneity and structure. Um, what did you think about sort of question 66 there? How does spatial structure influence ecosystem function? And how do we integrate in, within and between these spatial scales? Is that um, a question that's really trying to be answered in the terrestrial literature and research right now? That's good. I wrote that one down too. I also uh. flagged that one. I, I think maybe... Uh, <laughs> Well, I think that reflects maybe some of our common background, um, but also just the idea yeah. that spatial processes have been fundamental to ecology for a long time, and that's um, really an idea that integrates across all fields. Yeah, so from the um, so the work that I'm looking at now is basically looking at forest productivity and how that varies across spatial scales and. You know, I so a lot of my PhD work was on looking at watershed scale, and now I'm working kind of at this continental scale, which is kind of a new thing for me. And um, you know, it's kind of I don't know, like this is a really broad question, right? And so I guess it depends on which facet that you want to look at. Like from my standpoint, you know, yeah, we obviously need to understand ecosystem function and how it varies spatially. But man, the hardest part is the scaling issue, I think, maybe. Because, you know, you can't measure everything. You can't measure every watershed. You can't measure every tree. And when you go up to space, you can use a lot of space-borne sensors, and you can get a really good 30,000-foot, 6-mile, whatever, bird's-eye view of what's going on. And then you can also kind of walk through a forest or walk into a watershed and get a really good idea of what's going on on that scale. But they don't necessarily always match. And I think that's the difficult part, at least in some of the work that I'm doing now, is trying to get to that point. Um, I don't know, what, do you, what do you guys think as far as this moving forward? Yeah, well, I think in um, freshwater ecosystems, we think about this a lot as well and trying to understand how, say, spatial heterogeneity within a lake um, maps onto the function of that lake, how spatial heterogeneity in a region, so does neighboring lakes look like each other, do they act like each other, and then trying to get up at that continental and global scale is something that people are working a lot on right now and trying to understand how those different levels um of scale interact with each other. So sort of those cross-scale interactions, which is actually the goal of a large collaborative working group um, called CSI Limnology, looking at cross-scale interactions. So if you haven't heard of them, you should go check out their website, csilimnology.org. They're doing some really cool work on these exact questions. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, so sort of fundamentally, um, it, we sort of have really good top-down approaches to looking at ecological systems, and we have really good bottom-up approaches. So this is the comparison between things like satellite remote sensing versus ground-based observation. But we have you know, some problems with how to um, integrate them. Um, some things that, that I've found useful in the realm of population dynamics are, you know, working with simulation models, um, especially individual-based um, 
mechanistic simulations and um, basically looking at how um, these local skill processes and individual uh, behaviors and movements scale up to affect um, population dynamics, um, spatial variation in um, vital rates or uh, range boundary dynamics. And although it gets you know, more and more complicated, the more things you need to bring into the picture. I think that, um, you know, similar types of approaches can be useful from an ecosystem and a community perspective as well. Yeah, absolutely. I I think, John, it's interesting you're talking about sort of going from that smaller scale up to the larger. And one of the things that I'm interested in doing and I'll be working on a lot in the future is how to go from the larger to the smaller. So when it comes to things like water quality and water quality management, we're really interested in the individual lake itself. But there's lots of processes that are working on a larger scale. How do those larger scale processes, how are they going to scale down to influence this one individual lake and its water quality over time? So sort of in the opposite direction. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think that's that's sort of a maybe a a difference between how terrestrial ecology and aquatic um, ecology are progressing? Or is that... Or maybe, mm, that's or maybe a, good a difference question. between how ecosystem ecology and population ecology are progressing? Yeah, that's quite possible. And that could come from sort of being on either end of the spectrum as far as scale to some degree. Obviously, there's scale on either side. But yeah, it's possible. It's it's really hard to work. There's, there's that gray space, it seems like, in the middle, where it's just kind of difficult. So, you know, I, I mean... I think in the textbooks they call it community ecology. Community <laughs> ecology? Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to those questions later. <laughs> what was it, the, the joke, the over-explanation of the obvious? Is that what... Yes. Okay. The long-standing joke, community ecology, is the over-explanation of the obvious. I, we do, I, I don't personally feel that way. I'm just <laughs> saying it. I don't want to get, like, hate mail from community ecologists. I don't know. I like community. I mean, I don't understand it, I guess. I don't know. Like, I do, but I don't. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I understand and what I don't understand anymore. feels very blurry about that. I think... um, Do you think that happened um, as you moved further into your PhD? Yeah, isn't there, like, you feel... My brother-in-law said this as well, that you have this... About the time that you do your comprehensive exams, that you feel like you know everything... And then it's just a real sharp decline after that, and you just kind of get into... It's more like you you realize the amount of uncertainty and the unknowns in the world, right? And I think that can be overwhelming at first, at least to me. It's like, oh gosh, it doesn't seem like we know anything. I mean, that's why there's a whole paper here. Like, these are a hundred questions. We don't know. So, So here's a question... How many of these do you think are um, are things that we have partial answers to in individual systems or cases? And what we really need is not so much more studies to go out and solve this problem for their particular study system, but uh, synthesis work to occur to bridge these different areas of literature together. I think that would be a really strong addition, you know, 
And I think that's why, well, I mean, short, in a short answer, yes, that would be great. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I don't know. Like, I never want to say, like, well, we don't need to study anymore anything. But I think, I think there there's always power be... when we come together as a scientific community, though, that's working yeah. on similar problems and can identify the things that we've learned and then the knowledge gaps that still exist. That's why I think the interdisciplinary work and cross-discipline stuff is super important. You know, not only do you just kind of, you can, at a base level, you at least get somebody looking at a problem from a new way, you know, a new skill set, new tools that they can analyze a problem. But also, like John was saying, like synthesize things as well, which is, you know, kind of why we have alumnologists and a population ecologist and everything here right now, right? Is that we're kind of used to doing this kind of work. So, building on that one, question 66, right? Um, question 65 before it. How does the structure of ecological interaction networks affect ecosystem functioning and stability? So, if we want to understand the spatial structure influence in question 66, first we have to understand the interactions, too, right? So, what do you guys think on that? Do we have to understand? I mean, I think, <laughs> well, for, for a full understanding, full, a full mechanistic understanding, definitely. But there's also, you know, ways that we can come at some of these um, questions phenomenologically and just, um, you know, rely on statistical descriptions um of different systems and the processes going on in them, their spatial structure, and ask how that correlates with, you know, other statistical descriptions of ecosystem functioning. Um, I don't want to argue that that's the most um, holistic or satisfying approach, but it is a way to do science. So why do we not have a better understanding of ecological interactions at this point? I mean, we've been doing this for 100 years. They're really hard to measure. I mean, there's just a lot. Yeah. Fair point. <laughs> there's a lot that's... Yeah, there's a lot. They're hard to measure. And the scaling question and the scaling issue again. So, so how do we get to these, both of these, the spatial scale and understanding interactions? Which I guess if we had the answer to, that would be pretty awesome would, we probably wouldn't broadcast that to everyone initially yeah if we had the answer to that, that that would probably make us the three you know most important scientists of the next generation so <laughs> if you really want to drive people nuts jeff let's just audit in like a beep that lasts for about 20 <laughs> seconds or so so they think that they just missed the most brilliant idea <laughs> Spoiler this part alert, has we been redacted, it. yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. You know, I don't... No, I think these are good. And I'm glad that we, as someone who does try to, you know, think about spatial skills and structure all the time, I think it's kind of interesting that we started with this one. Because it... Yeah, man, there's a lot of uncertainty here. You know, yesterday we were... Um, in the lab group, we were talking about this paper from 2014, a forest ecology paper really just looking at complementarity 
which is the difference in production between a mixed stand and a monoculture stand. So if you have positive complementarity, you have uh, higher production, higher growth in the mixed stand. Or if you have lower, you have higher growth in the monoculture. And trying to understand how that varies uh, spatially, but also, you know, why does it vary spatially? And when, in this case, we're talking spatially also like vertically and horizontally. Like, does it have to do with, you know, competition that decreases light availability? Or does competition increase or decrease resource availability? It depends on kind of what's in the system. And then there's another question about diversity that comes in there, which, uh, you know, I hope we get to later today. But, um, yeah, like it's a really, you know, kind of complex thing, and we don't have a lot of understanding about some of this. And also, you know, I, I don't know if... There may be an issue, too, as well as how spatial scale is defined. That may be an important consideration. But if we look at other sciences like physics... You know, when you move to, uh, you know, the, the scale of atoms, you know, quantum physics versus the universe, they don't necessarily jive either. So this is kind of a, a broad scale, you know, cross-discipline issue. Yeah, I think that, you know, you've kind of hit on something that might be challenging about discrete hierarchies in natural systems um, and, you know, just the fact that they're not necessarily discrete that's sort of a um, a convenience that we as researchers uh, apply to um, the systems that we're studying but um, it may not be that the hierarchies that exist might not be sufficient for um, certain questions that we want to ask or they might even be entirely misleading Yeah, it's just some heuristic for understanding and categorizing the world, like the arbitrary number of a hundred to define how many important questions there are. Um, yeah, and sorry, I, I didn't mean to suggest so, that those hierarchies weren't useful, but... Oh, no, 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 it's not. I mean, I'm not saying that, but... Uh, but we're, I, I'm we're, not saying we're starting to talk about that. things that are really happening at the interface of different... Um, spatial scales, different organizational scales in ecology. And so, you know, those categorizations that historically have um, been useful and worked well for us might be, um, they might be hard to deal with in that context of um, working at the, the boundaries. So, not to jump the gun about things that aren't in here, because this isn't really an ecological research question. It's more of a, a broader question. But how on earth are we going to get students and grad students who are going to be starting large research projects up to speed fast enough on this? You know, we already have the issue in the sciences where you need this just vast array of skills to be able to do something. You need to be able to code. You need to understand statistics. You need to you know, be a good communicator, you need to basically be like a graphic designer, and you have to have this broad knowledge base of hundreds of years of science and everything else, and it's just, you know, something's becoming more and more complex every year. Um, I think that's going to be a unique challenge in the next hundred, the next ten years, let alone the next hundred years, 
of how to be able to get people up to speed quick enough to do science without them losing their mind. Or do you think, am I, am I like, you know, what's the uh, shouting the sky is falling kind of thing? I I think it is certainly a a challenge, Um, and as someone who's been looking for graduate students in the past few months, it's something that I'm really thinking a lot about. Does this person have the skills coming in that I'm going to need them to have right off the bat in order to start getting work done and to start working? And that's tough because not everybody has it. I mean, you have, it's just the sheer amount of data that we can collect now is ridiculous. I mean, it's just huge, and you can't, you know, we're beyond the Excel spreadsheets and TI-85 calculators, I think, at this point, for being able to do the, the science that is necessary. Yeah, I think we're seeing the incorporation, though, in collaborative groups of more data scientists. So if you think, like, succinct, I believe, which is the, uh, oh, somebody correct me, Socioecological Synthesis Center? You got it. Yes. Annapolis, Maryland. Yes. They, um, I think they have data scientists that are a part of the center, right, that assist in these groups and are not just assistants in these groups, but also collaborate as a part of these groups and um, these synthesis groups. And I think that's a, a more common thing that we're seeing. And it was a recognition that maybe we don't have to have all of those individual skills, but we need to know where to seek out those skills. And there needs to be a framework under which you can incorporate people with different skills and that collaboration is still seen as successful. In other words, when you're going up for job promotion or people are considering your career in that regard, that, you know, those sort of collaborations, there's a way to get credit for the work that you've done. Agreed. Yeah, I I agree with that too. You know, the one thing that I would add though is that a lot of those sort of technical skills are attainable either through you know a person's own um you know education and initiative or through collaborations um but i think that it remains as it always has been that you know the 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 fundamental skill of being a scientist is critical thinking and that you know you can do um yeah, you can do a lot of things to get the research skills that you need, whether it's programming or statistics or um, how to identify a group of organisms. Um, there are lots of sources of that knowledge and ways to attain them. Um, but the the fundamental skill is really, really critical thought. And um, I think that you know, Grace, you spoke about looking for graduate students that, you know, that's maybe the, the fundamental um, skill that that I you know, certainly look for in, in people who um, who I want to to work with. Yeah, absolutely. That may be um, we should have our own dedicated show about that. I think at some point, because I know we had talked about doing something on kind of non-academic books academics should read. And have you read, I don't know if you guys have read the E.O. Wilson book, The Letters to a Young Scientist. It's, um, it's an interesting book, and there's some kind of talk in there as well. Like, I think he actually takes this line of thinking to an extreme in a couple of cases. But it's kind of interesting. So it's a really short, quick read. Um, but overall, pretty good book. But, yeah. Um, 
questions. John. Yes. You're up. What question you got? What question do I got? Um, you know, I'm actually going to point this in a slightly different direction um, because I think it was an interesting question, not even really strictly an ecological science question, um, but how is our understanding of ecology influenced by publication bias? Oh, what do you mean by publication bias? Just to get the definitions great. Um, so I, well, I think that I'm not sure what the the authors exactly intended it to mean, but, you know, there are the sort of most basic definition of publication bias I think of as, you know, we only publish positive results. We don't publish, you know, negative or inconclusive oh, okay. things. But there's also, of course, issues of, you know, access in um, sciences, whether that's from um, less developed parts of the world or um, women and minorities in science. So there, there are other issues that I think are also wrapped up in that. Yeah, I think sometimes I've heard publication bias referred to as the file, file drawer problem. Sort of, yeah, right, the studies that get published aren't uh, okay. representative of the full population of studies yeah, yeah. that have been out there. Okay. I didn't, so yeah, I didn't exactly know how to interpret that because the alternative thought of that I had was thinking of, because you see this in sometimes some of the biomedical sciences where you'll shape a study or design a study necessarily with a journal in mind kind of way. Mm. Um, so yeah, I didn't know. So I'm glad you guys could expound upon that a little more. Yeah, that's, I didn't really even really think about how big of an issue that is till right now. That is a big deal. In what way do you think it's a big deal? Like, how do you think it affects ecology? Well, so I often thought that, you know, there's, there's people working on this now, like being able to, you know, like I worked a summer project at, at Blandy Experimental Farm where we collected a lot of data and it was with an REU student. You know, the findings were okay. Like there wasn't anything remarkable about it. It was looking at, you know, earthworm movement in regard to some soil properties. And, um, but like, it's not going to go anywhere. Like there's not really anywhere to really kind of publish it. It's kind of a neutral result. But, um, there's got to be countless studies like that, like you said, like negative results kind of thing, where we don't know that we already don't know this, that it could just be out. But I don't know where you can kind of go with that, right? Like when you're trying to shape it and trying to figure out kind of questions, this could potentially prevent some undergrad in the future from having to replicate this and when they could be spending their time on something else. Um, so I, I don't know. So, so the, the the phenomenon that I think that you're talking about is that you know, maybe it slows down the pace of the field, that there isn't an avenue for um, research yeah. that is, you know, maybe it's not incredibly sophisticated, maybe the um, results were, you know, inconclusive, or, um, you know, the data for a variety of reasons just ended up um, not being, you know, that good or, or not fitting into a, um, a, you know, a controversy or a major hypothesis in ecology. I mean, I know that there are many studies that also um, get published based on refuting um, a big idea. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, 
right, so let's think of this. Uh, I'm going to think of an absolutely ridiculous example. Let's say, what's an animal? Bears. All right, everybody loves bears. Uh, bears across the East Coast. Let's say independently, um, 20 different research groups went out and did some type of manipulation where they fed bears ice cream, uh, different flavors of ice cream, whatever. The, you know, the experiments were kind of independent, whatever. They didn't know they were each working on it. And eight groups found this strong relationship and each independently, you know, published their thing about bears and how the bears eating ice cream affects their behavior and whatnot. The other 12 groups found neutral, found nothing, went out, they didn't publish this, right? So this doesn't exist in the literature as far as we know. Ten years down the line, somebody does a meta-analysis about how feeding ice cream to various animals affects things, and of course they include the positive results from the bears in there. And now when you've aggregated this data, you have this fairly large effect because the other 12 studies didn't exist. Is that a problem, or is that absolutely ridiculous, and I'm thinking about this the wrong way because I haven't had enough coffee this morning? No, I, I think it is a problem, and I think you, you've really hit the nail on the head there. Um, in a perfect world, we would have, if you've done good science, which is well thought out, carefully collected data, you know, good statistics, things like that, and if you've done good science and yet there's still not a positive result, say, it should still be publishable, right, in a perfect world yeah. because you've learned something by doing good science. But that's not necessarily the case. Um, and so I think that's be, really where the problem is. Because there's still a lot of maybe not as good science out there, and it didn't have a very good result. And, you know, maybe that shouldn't be published. But good science, still without the positive result, or the strong result, should have a place to be published. And also, yeah. I mean, there are avenues like PLOS One where you can, you know, generally publish anything and it's only evaluated on the scientific merit. But then like it costs like fifteen hundred dollars as a you know as like a publishing fee and there's I mean you know there's still some I think bias in regard to looking if you have too many publications in a journal like that, you can unfortunately I think there can be a negative kind of view of that in some circles. This might sound a little bit um, elitist, but <laughs> if you're doing a body of work and you know publishing, you know doing you know ten different studies that all have you know inconclusive results and you know don't fit into a existing <laughs> ecological theory in such a way that you can present that study as a as a negative test of that theory then i would question maybe whether that person is really doing good science oh sure no that's a fair point i mean if you don't know how to construct the study in the first place you're not asking the right questions yeah as we like to say on our project you know if you can design the study so that the positive result or the negative result actually end up both being an interesting story that's a pretty cool story study yeah i like that that's exactly the kind of study that i think everyone uh should shoot for um you know there's been some discussions um recently about sort of the role of theory in ecology and i think that that is an, an important thing that 
it should guide the kind of tests that we do and and that's one way that you can really safeguard your experiments from being utter failures is if you know if if they're really well connected to theory in their design and line of questioning then you know even you know even negative results are you know a publishable you know overcoming this uh publication bias issue but also really do help to move the field forward chop that out of their other future episodes mm-hmm. designing good studies grace you got another one Oh, I knew you were going to ask. I've been looking. Um, <laughs> well, there's a question here, number 92. How successful have ecological predictions been in the past and why? And I guess that is certainly an interesting question, but what it made me think of is um, our focus in ecology on prediction and how important prediction is. And maybe ask you guys, in your opinion, do you think that prediction is sort of the the you know, trophy we should be shooting for. So I think there's there's kind of this movement where towards ecology needing to be able to make strong predictions and do a lot of forecasting, right? Um, Mike Dietz from Boston University has a book coming out soon about ecological forecasting. And, um, you know, it's his relation to the Paleoin group, right, who are, you know, using... Um, uh, I can't think of it right now. I'll put a link. But Paleoin groups is looking at, you know, paleontological... Paleontology. Um, I'm going to look it up so I don't fuck up this description of this group, but people I know, and they're going to be like, you have no idea what we do, do you? The Paleoecological Observ- Observatory Network, right? So it's an te- interdisciplinary team of paleo or paleoecologists, ecological, ecological st- statisticians, ecosystem modelers, um, and their idea is to reconstruct forest composition, fire regimes, and climates in the forest across the northeastern U.S. and Alaska over the past 2,000 years to do to drive and validate terrestrial ecosystem models, right? So kind of getting at this question of looking at the past, strengthening those predictions in order to make better predictions moving forward. And I think, um, you know, he and some other people would argue that if your science isn't predictive, then of what value is it? Right? Like, why? Are we just, are we doing, are we collecting, are we doing the, the, the sin of just doing stamp collecting? Right? Of just, that's, you know, just naming things. Or just figuring out stuff without any type of, you know, application. I wonder about how they define prediction. Right? You know, a lot of ecology is explanatory. You know, we collect data and we use a variety of tools to try and explain the processes that created that data. And I think that we predominantly assume that if we come up with a mostly correct description of what those processes are, then we can, then then that is predictive. But I don't think that many studies sort of explicitly test whether or not their um, their findings are predictive. I mean, that's a really high bar for ecology, right? You know, there's, you know, spatial variation in, you know, things that we don't even really understand or measure properly. Um and that complicates extrapolating results over space. 
and you know how do we predict the future you know it, it's more of a you know a probabilistic sense of prediction um with a lot of uncertainty than it is any ability to say you know on june 14th 2020 <laughs> you know the weather is going to be this and yeah. you know my uh gypsy moths are going to be outbreaking and you know it, it, yeah it, you know so i yeah i just wonder how they define prediction because i think that there is a a place where that is um reasonable and will you know result in sort of more rigorous ecology but there's also a sense to which that that's really an unreasonable expectation of ecology yeah well i think one of the goals though of prediction is to also be able to say you know if you understand like you were talking about the um from your observations and way of understanding those mechanisms, why those observations occurred that way. So when you understand mechanism, driver, um, environmental condition, and spatial and temporal heterogeneity, you should be able, under certain conditions or even varying conditions from that, be able to predict what sort of interactions or things will take place of what your observations will be. And whether or not that is um, five minutes in the future or a long time down the road also probably um, and whether or not you're talking about what's going to happen in one square meter of land versus across the entire landscape again also has to do with the spatial and temporal scale you're working at as well as what you're able to predict across which again gets back to that scaling issue i think it's all connected we don't know anything um yeah so i think it's i mean just like grace said it's kind of over it's a scale thing, right? And really, it's just about decreasing uncertainty. Um, like, if you look at, like, the 538 political model, they're, you know, predicting uh, Virginia to vote Democrat in the presidential election, but they're not, like, going to the granular level of telling you what Albemarle County is going to vote. Um, but it's very much just kind of based on, you know, here's the past observations, here's where, you know, the polls are actually kind of saying right now, and it's, if we can get to that level, um, that would be an improvement, right? Yeah. I don't know. Like a lot of my work's been on looking at how you know rhododendron change, you know, biogeochemistry, like a watershed scale in West Virginia, and um, like I know you know we can, we're showing you know work showing that it's expanding, but we don't really have a way yet to forecast like well, how far is it possibly going to expand with warming. Or like some of the work, John, that you know you and I did with the, the spruce stuff. Like, being away, that, those level of predictions is helpful. You know, trying to figure out well, what's how is a changing climate going to impact you know this tree, and how can we get to the point whether it's new new tool development, new something to be able to decrease the uncertainty on those predictions and be able to make them at a scale that we can do something with. You know, in a, in a human lifespan or smaller shorter yeah no I, I think that's right i think that you know we just have to be clear about our expectations for those predictions and you know make sure that they're you know they're reasonable and and appropriately contextualized um so i'm a big loser and didn't bring my uh computer charger to the quiet spot that i need to record <laughs> this 
and yeah. my computer is probably going to die, and I don't want to uh, lose this uh, and fuck it all up. So I'm going to stop recording and sign off um, and save and export before it all goes to hell. All right, excellent. Well, let's do that. Let's close it out. Um, maybe we should do a part two. Yeah, sounds good. Part two. All right, cool. Well, thank you guys. And yeah, see you soon. Yeah, thanks for listening. All right. Bye. Stay classy, (laughs) internet. Bye, guys.